Welcome to the Vineyard. Uh, my name is Adam. I'm the pastor here at the Vineyard. Really glad that you're here. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're really super stoked that you came to hang out with us. Uh, if you want to, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel. We're going to start something new this morning. And uh, this is going to be fun. Before we get into uh, the message, a couple things. Number one, um, did you guys notice that like really amazing thing that Josh and Sam were playing at the end? It's kind of striking, wasn't it? Yeah, the only reason I want to bring it up is because um, this may be sort of new for some of you, but that is, uh, that is what it's called to prophesy on your instrument. There's, there's playing your instrument, and then there's prophesying on your instrument. And uh, I don't know if you... Could you just tell that what was coming out of there was otherworldly? It was like, where did that come from? See, that, those kinds of sounds only come from heaven, you know? And it's, it's occasionally in worship, we break through to this moment where heaven and earth overlap one another. And when that happens, all kinds of great stuff happens. And one of the things that often happens, especially when Josh is on the stage, is he'll begin to prophesy with his instrument. And it's actually, it's actually totally okay not to sing when someone is prophesying on their instrument. But what they're actually playing is they're playing the prayer of the people. I, I can't really go into that right now, and someday we need to. But they're, play, they're playing the prayer of the people. They're playing the prayer of the heart. Um, and uh, it, it's totally okay just to get locked into that at a purely, like, enjoyment level. It's totally legal, all right? I just felt like I needed to bring that up. It was, uh, those are significant moments. And by the way, we're going for that. Like, we want to give Jesus everything that he deserves. And in the process of that, as, as different as it may get, the sounds, the moment, we want, we're going for that, you know. So, amen to that. Glad you guys are here this morning. Everybody happy? Yeah, everybody had a good week? Good week? Yeah, yeah had a great week as well. Um, uh, man, um, before we get into this... Um, also, just want to ask the church, if you guys will just pray for me and the leadership, everything is really good. And we got some, we got some big decisions to make in the next two months, and I, I would just really enjoy it if you guys would pray, and this is what I would enjoy if you guys would pray. Would you pray, God, give the leaders of the church wisdom, okay? Um, so if you'll do that for me, I would be really, really excited. Uh, we're just in this spot where... I just want to be honest before I get into this message. Um, I'm in this spot as a pastor where I, um, I, we, are, we are leading the church as far as we've ever been led. And so from this point on, we need, we need more wisdom, more revelation, more insight for God for what happens next because no one's ever led me beyond what we're doing right now. But I know there's more. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like doing algebra your whole life and getting dropped into a calculus class. You need a new teacher. You need a new, it's a new, you know, calculus and algebra. They look the same, but they're not the same. And um, so that's what we're doing right now. And there's some really exciting stuff coming up, and I'll share it with you in a couple months. But we just need wisdom right now, if that makes sense. <sighs> oh, man. Everybody in Daniel? Yeah. Um, I'm in a bit of a conundrum this morning. Bit of a conundrum. Uh, the conundrum is this. Uh, as I was preparing for Daniel chapter 1 this week, 
Um, there's really not one message in Daniel chapter 1. I've counted at least five. And so I'm even now trying to decide whether I'm going to inflict one or five upon you. <laughs> um, let me ask you this. Everybody cool if we just take, if we go a little slower through, through a book than we normally do? Would that be cool? Would anybody just like get totally bored eight weeks in? Okay. Good. Because I think we're going to take a little time. I, I think there's some issues here for us. Um, before we started this, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm bored, I don't know what to do. Well, how about Daniel? It really wasn't that. It was, it was more along the lines of the Lord asked me to walk the church through Daniel again because it was really important for everybody who's here. Um, and I don't know if you guys know much about the book of Daniel, but hopefully we're going to unpack some of that. But it's a really significant book, and I think it's significant for us, especially in the, in the moment that we're living right now, uh, because Daniel is about a couple things, but one of the main things that Daniel is about, it's, it, it's about how to remain faithful to God in Babylon and hit your calling and actually influence people who are trying to influence you. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's, about, it's about living in Babylon, living in a demonic culture, but remaining faithful to God and influencing the influencers. Does that make sense? So that's the reason I think this is really important for us. It's one of the calls that I think is on this house. It's on these people. Uh, I don't know if you guys have realized this, but we're a group of dreamers, right? We're a group of dreamers. Uh, it, it's one of the things that happens here. If you come and hang out here at the vineyard for any extended period of time, if you live here for six months and you give yourself to being a part of the community. You know, you could show up every Sunday morning but not give yourself. Do you understand that? But I'm talking about if you give yourself to being in the community for six months, you'll end up with new dreams and you'll end up with new ideas and new concepts about your life and you'll end up doing things that you never dreamt or thought you would do before. I've seen it too many times already this year. How many of you all know that Daniel is a dreamer? So it's really about living in dreams. It's about executing, uh, executing your call before God in essentially a demonic culture and um, remaining faithful to everybody involved, if that makes sense. So that's what we're going to try to walk through. And I'm going to, I just want to unpack the first couple verses this morning. And um, I'm going to ask your forgiveness up front, because it's, it's almost like we're going to start with a bit of a bummer, and then over the next couple weeks, it'll get a lot better. Does that make, is that okay? Yeah, one of the things about Daniel is you can't start with Daniel... You can't even start in on the book of Daniel without talking about judgment. Okay? But before we get there, we need to do a couple things. We need to do a couple things. The first thing that we need to do this morning is um, we need to ask the Spirit, who is among us even this morning, we need to ask the Spirit to come give us new eyes, new heart, new mind about this book in particular. Because this is really common with Old Testament books, but especially books like Daniel. We've heard it so many times, and we've grown up with it. We've, we heard it at VBS. We watched it on VeggieTales, right? You did. You, you saw the cucumbers, right? We saw the cucumber version of it. And one of the things that happens after you see it at, at VBS, Sunday School, and the cucumber VeggieTale version, um, one of the things that can subtly happen is you, you don't just pick up the knowledge or the information but you pick up this subtle, it's very subtle. It's so subtle. It's so quiet, you can barely hear it. But it's very subtle. And the, and the subtle thing that can be communicated is, this is a fairy tale. Especially when you watch it in a movie. All right? 
So we've seen it, we've heard it, we've been to VBS, and one of the things that can happen, because it's, it's actually happened to me, I'm just being confessional, is that we can hold pieces of the Scripture, we can read it, and there's a program going on, on the inside that just says, this is a fairy tale. Now, the first thing I want to tell you is a couple things. Number one, I believe in story. Okay, Not only that, but I believe that God believes in story. Um, I believe in a good hook. I believe in metaphors. I believe in similes. Metaphor. <laughs> That's the way I say it. I know metaphor. I believe, I believe in all those stuff. I believe, in, I believe in hyperbole. I mean, if you're a preacher, you have to believe in hyperbole. It's part of your calling. Yeah, and I believe that all those devices, like tucked inside of a compelling story, can hook your heart and actually change your life if you let it. But if you have, if you have running under, underneath it this, uh, this little program of this is a fairy tale, then it won't fully impact your life the way you want it to. Um, see, the trouble is, if we make it just a story or just a fairy tale, then we become the masters of the story. That's the trouble with fairy tales. We can become masters of fairy tales. And what I mean by masters is this, is we allow them to touch us or not touch us to the degree that we find it believable or not believable. And we can disregard things and go, oh, that's a fairy tale. That's just a story. It doesn't apply to me. It's not real life. See, it's, a, it's a easy to ignore the portions of the story that seem improbable or fantastic. With a story, I remain a master. I remain the boss. And in, in, and in the end, the tale serves me. And if I want to, at all. See, if it's exciting, I'll keep reading. See, when you're the master of the story, if it's exciting, I'll keep reading. If it's moral, and what I mean by moral is this, if it's moral in a way that doesn't step on any of my shortcomings, then I'll keep reading. Right? That's what we do with stories. If it's moral in a way that vindicates all my ways, all my thoughts and desires, then I'll read on. But if it challenges me, or if it suggests or demands, then I'll close the book and just remind myself it's a crazy story. It's a fantasy. I'll read along and I'll become quite numb to the injection of life that the Spirit may wish to place inside my heart. See, it's one of the, it's one of the problems with dealing with, especially the Old Testament. You know, it's, it's like Christian romance novels, you know? A young Amish girl. I don't know. It's Christian romance. Is that an oxymoron? I don't even know. But you know what I mean. We can, we can deal with it in a way that's just like, to the degree that it, it vindicates my life, I'll give myself to it. To the degree it challenges me, I'll write it off. Right? So, before we start this morning, we've got to start with this. I need you to say this with me, if it's all right. This is not a story. This is real life. This is for me. This is for us. Amen. All right. Was that Kevin? No, was it Kevin? No. <laughs> It's Rob C. <laughs> when there's comments from the peanut gallery, I assume that it's either Kevin or Richard. 
Awesome. So we need to read a couple verses here uh, to lead us into the book. Um, first couple verses. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Judah, I can't read today. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put it in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's tables. They were, they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. We'll stop right there. The first thing that we have to get on board with in the book of Daniel is that it begins with tragedy. And the tragedy is this, that God's people and the place that they lived was completely sacked by people who served other gods. And to say that it would be heartbreaking, like we don't really have a modern analog, especially for us here. There's not really a modern analog for the, for the way that this would have been completely destructive and completely demoralizing. You have to realize that when the Old Testament begins in earnest, in, in Genesis chapter 12, it begins with God and he comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, Abraham, I know you don't have any kids. I'm going to give you kids. Not only am I going to give you kids, but your descendants are going to be like the sand on the seashore. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless the whole world through you. That's the beginning. And then, then we get to the book of Joshua. And there's this book of conquest. They go into this land. They come up out of Egypt. And they come out of the desert and the wandering. And they take the land that God had promised to Abraham. You know? And they, they literally go in and they dispossess people. And, and God blesses them. He told, he, told, he told his favorite people, he says, I'm going to give you a land that you didn't work for. You're going to pick grapes that you didn't plant. You're going to gather honey that you didn't take care of. You're going to walk right in. And Joshua and the people, they go in. And by the time Joshua's over, he's an old man and he's fought all these battles. He becomes an administrator. And he's administrating. He's dividing the land. And everybody has a place. And everyone is at home and, and, there's, and their connection with God isn't merely a spiritual connection. It's actually become physical in the earth. And we have, a, we have a domain and a territory. And now by the time we get to Daniel, all of that's gone. They had a temple. And not, this wasn't just a temple, you all. It was a massive temple. And it wasn't just that it was massive and beautiful, but it was, it was what the temple represented. You understand that the temple in the Old Testament was where God, God's presence was. It was the place where heaven and earth connected. In the Holy of Holies, God was in there. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he comes in and he destroys the land. And he, if you read this book of Second Kings, he sets everything on fire. He steals out all the treasure and he takes it to his temple of his gods. And he sets the temple on fire, sets the city on fire. And then he begins to take their best and their brightest with them. Everybody agree, that's a bad day. That's a bad day. And the really troubling part is verse 2. Because verse 2 tells us that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And the only way to look at that is that God was judging His people. So you can't really get into the book of Daniel without realizing that judgment's real. So I want to talk about four... I want to give you 
couple thoughts about judgment, four of them in particular. Because we, we need to see this. Um, the first thought when it comes to judgment is this. Number one, uh, judgment, correction, and discipline are real. We live in a, mo- we live in a postmodern time uh, where we want to believe that judgment, correction, and discipline from the Lord are not real. But the thing we've got to get a hold of really quick here, especially at the beginning of the book, and especially for us who have devoted our lives to being followers of Jesus, is this, that number one, judgment, correction, and discipline are real. Number two, judgment and correction are a part of God's love and His mercy. As crazy as that sounds. Everybody with me? Judgment, is, is act, judgment and correction is actually a part of God's love and mercy over your life. We'll try to bring this full circle. But in, in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 6, um, the writer of Hebrews says that God disciplines His sons, right? So one of the ways that you know that you're in God's house is if He's ever disciplined you. Anybody in here ever been disciplined? <laughs> oh, yeah, come on. It's not fun, but discipline, correction, and judgment are actually a sign that God still cares about you. Can I tell you the worst thing ever is if it goes quiet. If it goes quiet, that's the worst thing ever. Uh, how many of you who, who are married know this or have a special friend? How many of you know that, that if you... I'm talking about a friend like David and Jonathan. I'm talking about a friendship like I have with my brother-in-law, Eric. Freaking morons. How many of you know, though, how many of you know that fighting is bad, but if your wife goes silent, that's really bad? So judgment, correction, and discipline are a sign of God's mercy. He, he actually disciplines the, su- the sons that he, le- that he loves. And um, that's a, it's a sign that, he's, that he still cares. If, if God is in your life, if he's poking around on your heart, that's actually a really good sign. It may be painful, but it's really good. And we need to, we need to grab hold of it. If he's poking around on your heart, if he's poking around on your conscience, that's still a good sign. Uh, how many of you realize that, that parents who love their kids but don't discipline them don't really love them? Yeah. No, you, you really don't. See, one of the things here about this kind of love is that this kind of love doesn't trade an easy now for a difficult tomorrow. Does that make sense? See, parents discipline their kids because we'd rather have a difficult now and an easy later. And this is the way the Lord is. The Lord would rather, the Lord would rather come into your life and it become difficult for a little while so that eternity, so the rest of your life and eternity could be great. So discipline is actually a sign of his, of his care and affection over your life. Like, if I don't discipline my sons, I'm setting them up for disaster. And that's the number one way a father can hate his children. Not discipline. Let them do whatever they want. And the reason that it isn't love, if I, I want to get down to this, because this, this is a mindset issue in the church, and it's a mindset issue in the people of God. 
the reason that lack of discipline, lack of correction, lack of judgment isn't love is because most of the time, lack of discipline, lack of correction, and lack of judgment is fear-based. Parents don't discipline their children because they're afraid their kids won't like them, right? And how many of you know that fear has nothing to do with love, but the scripture says, perfect love casts out all fear. So as a father, as a good father, I'm not afraid of my kids not liking me because I know what's best for them and I will come in with discipline and correction because that's real love because I'd rather have a difficult now and have an easy tomorrow. All right? So when God comes and pokes around in our life, it might feel difficult, but it's actually His love and affection because He's not afraid to bring up the thing that no one wants to talk about. Amen? So number one, judgment and correction are real. Number two, judgment and correction are actually a part of God's mercy. Number three, judgment is pretty much people just getting what they want or what they think they want. Does that make sense? This is the real big one. We've talked about it a little bit here before, but I, this is one of those things that I feel like is a, is a message that needs to go out into the bigger church in a, in a more dynamic way. Uh, we have this concept uh, that are broken concepts of God. And the number one broken concept that most of us live with toward God is that He enjoys my pain and that He enjoys inflicting pain upon me. Okay? A good father doesn't enjoy pain and a good father doesn't enjoy inflicting pain on his children. It gets no enjoyment out of it. This is the concept that a lot of the church, maybe a lot of us in the room, live with toward God. We live like this, that God sets standards. And He sets them so He knows that we can't achieve them. In fact, He picks particular standards that we're genetically predisposed to fail at. And He says, that's my standard. And then He holds us to it. Then when we fail, He punishes us. And in punishing, He's laughing the whole time. Now, you, you might think, well, that's not how I think. You might, you might want to slow down a little bit. You, that may be exactly how you think. Because a lot of us are living with this broken concept that God, is, that God, because He's omnipotent, knows how high we can jump, and then He raises the bar six inches beyond our grasp, and then when we can't get it, He laughs and shoves a piano out of heaven, right? <laughs> Yeah, you laugh. It's funny, but it's not a joke, right? Yeah, so we have this broken concept of God. But here's the truth. Most of judgment is really just people getting what they want or what they think they want. Um, I'll explain that a little bit more. Um, What you need to know is that when God delivered Jehoiakim and Judah into the hand of the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, He did it for two main reasons. And we don't really have time to go back and pick those up, but I'll just tell them to you and uh, we'll move on from there. The first reason that God delivered His very precious and beloved people over to a godless nation is because His people, for years and years and years, set their heart to serve other gods. Now imagine this, okay? You're talking about God comes and promises Abraham a land. You're talking about a people who were slaves in Egypt and walked through water, literally walls on either side of water, and then the water crashes over all your enemies. This is your history. This is your people. And then eventually you settle in a land that God promised with peace. And then after that, you have this rich tradition. We've walked through, we've walked through a sea. Before they entered the land, they walked through a river. I mean, like God wants to press this thing home that He's with them and for them. And when they enter the land with perfect peace and everyone has a home, 
then those people decide that they will serve the gods of that land rather than the God who brought them through the sea and the God who brought them through the river. How many of you realize that is bad? Yikes. That's a huge yikes. And it's not just bad because it's betrayal. We'll get more on that a little bit later. It's not bad because it's betrayal. It's, it's, it's actually bad for something else. So that's the number one reason. God's people began to serve other gods. So they were serving the gods of the Assyrians, the Chaldeans, and the Egyptians, rather than the God who delivered them out of Egypt. And then the second reason that God delivered them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar was that they didn't keep the Sabbath year. This is really interesting. I'm asking God if we could maybe do this again. Richard knows what I mean. This is a good one, isn't it? This was the plan, okay? And I'm just, I'm waiting for the kingdom of heaven to come in so that this can be maybe part of the plan again. Every seven years was a Sabbath year and it was devoted to the Lord. The people weren't to till the land or work. They were, they were to simply enjoy life and trust that the harvest in the sixth year would be big enough to carry them through to the harvest in the eighth year. How good is that? And by the way, well, let me talk about Sabbath here just for a moment. Because a lot of us have this really mixed up uh, concept of the Sabbath. You realize that Sabbath isn't the time when we simply do not work. Sabbath is to enjoy life. Okay? Some of us have this concept that Sabbath is, oh, well, I can't do anything. No, that's, that's a messed up concept. Sabbath is to enjoy life. How many of you realize that when the Lord made creation, six days He worked and on the seventh day He rested, how many of you realize that He didn't rest because He was tired? He wasn't like, I am worn out infinite, omnipotent God, worn out. See, he didn't, he didn't rest because he needed to. He rested from his work so that he could enjoy all that he had made. And so God invited his people and he said, you know what, we got this plan. We're going, every seventh year, I don't want you to work, I don't want you to till the fields and I want you to trust me that the harvest from the sixth year is going to be big enough to get you through the, to the eighth, eighth year. And for 490 years, the people ignored it. They never did it. Never, not even once. Some of you guys are Bible scholars and you know that the Babylonian captivity here in Nebuchadnezzar was 70 years. One year for every harvest year that was overlooked. What am I trying to say? Judgment, it's really not that God's in heaven mad and He's shoving pianos out and laughing. It really is that most of judgment is just people getting what they think they want. So God in heaven is saying, hey, you know what? You don't want to trust me? You want to... You want to bow down to the fertility god of the Chaldeans? You want to bow down to the sun god of Nebuchadnezzar and his people? Well, then how about this? How about you go live with them? <laughs> Lights are going on all over the room, right? That's what the judgment of God looks like. It's mostly him just saying, okay, I've been trying to talk to you about this for 490 years. And you've, you've repeatedly not listened to my prophets who have brought correction. And so what I'm going to do, because I'm a good dad, eventually I'm just going to let experience be your teacher. And why don't you just go ahead and live in Babylon and see how that goes. So who chose the judgment and the correction? The people did. The people did. So anytime that we feel corrected by God... Um, we may go through this moment of anger toward God or resistance, but we really need to realize that it, we're, we're just getting what we asked Him for. And it's His love and His mercy. And, and it wasn't just God was saying, you know, like a spiteful dad who'd be like, 
okay, you don't like my rules, get out of my house. It wasn't that. It was, okay, you don't want to serve me. Why don't you go serve the gods of the Chaldeans and let's see how that works. And he knows in his infinite wisdom that those gods of the Chaldeans are really no gods at all and that eventually the people's hearts would turn back to the true God. Sometimes we just don't know, right? So number one, judgment and correction are real. Number two, judgment and correction are actually a part of his love and his mercy. And number three, judgment is mostly people just getting what they think they want without God being happy. And then number four, we've kind of already hit on this. Judgment is just sort of built into life. And I want to explain this a little bit. Because if we get, if we get these four things, it will allow us to live with a clean conscience before God, especially when He begins to poke around on our life a little bit. Judgment, number four, is just sort of built into life. Um, the reason is this. Number one, God is good. <laughs> right? God is good. Uh, there are so many implications to the goodness of God. We could preach for the next five years about the implications of the goodness of God just as a theological concept, and we can never exhaust it. But one of the main implications to the understanding that God is good is this. You can't live the good kind of life without Him. This was sort of an aha moment for me. I, I actually walked with the Lord a good, a good long while before I realized this. That, you, that God is good, and in fact, He's so good, as Andrew prayed this morning, He's the definition of goodness, and He's not the definition of goodness because He's the biggest, strongest guy in the universe. He's the, he's the definition of goodness because He's the author of life. Like, nothing can live. Everything that's alive came from Him. Like, all of life comes from Him, right? So He's so good, like, you can't have goodness and not be connected to Him. Like, goodness is who He is. And so if you leave absolute, eternal perfect goodness, what's left, right? Like you walk away from goodness and the only thing that can happen is tragedy, right? This is how judgment is sort of built into life. If you leave absolute goodness, there's nothing left. How many of you remember, uh, actually AJ preached it last week, the, the story of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. When did the prodigal son get in trouble? When he left his father's house. So you can't leave the father's house in his care and not experience trouble. God is absolutely good. It is impossible to live the good kind of life and not be connected to God. If you leave the father's house, disaster is the only thing that's waiting. And by the way, when you leave the father's house, when, when that automatic sort of judgment be, that's built into life begins to press in upon you, the Father in heaven is not laughing. He's not shoving pianos out of heaven. In fact, he's crying. And just like the Father in the story, he is day by day standing outside the house looking on the horizon for any one of his sons and daughters who would come to their senses and return home. He's just so good. He is so, so good. Right along with that thought is, th is this. Again, these were all things that I've only come to in the last three or four years of walking with Jesus. Um, God is good. 
and he only wants what's good for me. He only wants what's good for me. You know that God, the God doesn't want evil or disaster for, for anyone, anywhere. And I reject any theology that says that he does. God only wants goodness for every single person. So how does this play out? Well, how many of you have ever read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7? That's the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you have ever read the Sermon on the Mount and went, Ah! Dang it! Anyone ever read it and been like, dang it? And by the way, maybe one of the scariest verses in the whole ding-dang Bible is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Like, you cast out demons and I don't even know you. Get out of my face, right? You ever read that and we're like, ah! Yeah. You ever read those things like, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is like, hey, you need to pray and when you do it, you ought to do it in secret. You, You need to give and you need to do it in secret. And you need to forgive people. And you need to not be angry. In fact, you need to love your enemies. And everyone is totally like about loving their enemies at church until Monday when they actually meet an enemy. <laughs> right? Like, I'm, oh, I'm just, oh, I'm just, God's teaching me about loving my enemies. Oh. And then you meet an enemy and you realize, this, this sucks. <laughs> right? But then some of us, like the super Christians in the room, some of us are like, we're like, I'm going to love my enemies, you know? And we grit our teeth. I love you. I love you. I love you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some don't. And we just, we, we make a covenant in our heart, like, no matter what, I'm going to do it. Ugh, you know? I'm going to hate it, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to pray in secret. Ugh. It's horrible. Ugh. Boring. Falling asleep. Feeling condemned and guilty. Blah, blah, blah. I'm going to fast. Ugh. But we're just going to do it because it's in the Word. Ugh. You know? Anybody ever been there? Can I tell you something? Anytime you start this stuff, that's where you start. And it's totally okay. It just starts from like that effort thing. Then you get really frustrated because you realize it just isn't even possible. Like, I just can't even do it, God. Like, what am I doing? Then you're like, then you're in your truck and you're totally crying. You're like, man, I hate that guy, God. I freaking hate him. Maybe you've never had that conversation. I'm going to teach this church how to pray sometime. <laughs> this is how I pray. Like, I, you know, set my heart to love my enemies. I get an enemy and then I try to love him. And I can't because he won't let me love him. You know, it's a ding dang thing about your enemies. They don't let you be good to them. And then I'm finally in my truck and I'm just crying. I'm like, I hate that guy. I just totally freaking hate him. I'm just being honest. And oddly enough, the Lord comes in the truck and begins to work with me. You know? But you know what really changed my heart about all these things that Jesus invites us into? They're not demands. They're actually invitations. That's the first thing that that changed my heart is when I realized it wasn't a demand and there was actually an invitation because you don't have to do it. He invites you to do it. And the reason He invites you to do it is back to this thing that He only wants good things for you. 
Because he's actually inviting you into the good kind of life. Like you can't be, you can't be a good person and you can't live the good kind of life if you hate your neighbor. You can't. It'll eat you up. Like if you carry unforgiveness in your life, for very long, it will change who you are. Like the DNA structures on the inside of your cells actually will change with unforgiveness. And the next thing you know, you'll end up with all kinds of problems. And so God, when God says love your enemies, He's actually inviting you into the good kind of life because there's nothing about the hating kind of life that's a good kind of life. But if we give ourselves, if we give ourselves to hatred, if we give ourselves to unforgiveness, if we give ourselves to comfort, especially like comforting ourselves with self-pity and unforgiveness, then the judgment of God begins to kick in and what was bad gets way worse. Way worse. So when God says, hey, you should love your enemies, or when God says, hey, you should pray and you should pray in secret, when God says, you should not be angry, when God says, you should not look at a woman lustfully, when God says all of these things, He's actually saying this for my benefit. And because it's for my benefit, it's actually an invitation. It's not a demand, it's an invitation. And it's an invitation to be with Him, and it's an invitation to live the good kind of life. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. This is a great book, by the way. It's going to get way more encouraging. But we, had to, we have to start here. We have to start with God has judged His own people and that there's a reason. And the reason is He's basically giving them what they think they want. Mm-hmm. So if you want to this morning, I want you to stand up. I want to pray for us.